The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about technology and how it is making us behave like simple machines. It's really scary. And I think you and I watched recently on Ancient Aliens where they talked about the same thing. And this is an amazing book that I've been reading by Brett Frischman and Evan Selinger. And it's called Re-Engineering Humanity. And it has this picture on the front. It's kind of uh, scary in a way, but (laughs) of this human that's really a machine sitting there and uh So we're going to talk about this amazing book, and let me tell you a little bit. We're going to be speaking only with Brett today, but let me tell you a little bit about Brett. Brett Frischman is the Charles Whitger Endowed University Professor in Law, Business, and Economics at Villanova University. He's an affiliate scholar of the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, and a trustee for the Nexus Center for Internet and Society, a Politecnico di Torino. He has published foundational books on the relationships between infrastructural resources, governance, commons, and spillovers, including infrastructure. The Social Value of Shared Resources, 2012, Governing um, Knowledge Commons in 2014 with Michael Madison and Catherine Strandberg, and Governing Medical Knowledge Commons by Cambridge University Press with Michael Madison and Catherine Strandberg. So he has written other books as well, but um, this one is just something amazing that he's written with Evan Selinger. So let me, uh, yeah, let me just read you a quote by uh, one of the testimonials here by uh, by Vint Cerf, who is the co-inventor of the internet. Reengineering humanity brings a pragmatic, if somewhat dystopic perspective to the technological phenomena, phenomena of our age. Humans are learning machines, and we learn from our experiences. This book made me ask myself whether the experiences we are providing to our societies are, in fact, beneficial in the long run. So this is, uh, this is something that we have to look at. What is the future of humanity with all this technology and all this information that is being shared and sold and all the surveillance out there. So I am so thrilled to have our wonderful guest, Brett. Thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, 
Amari, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. Yeah. So first of all, uh, why is it that you decided to write this book? Well, um, it's a good, I mean, it's, a good, it's always an interesting question. Why did you write the book? And it's, it's, uh, the book is a good, I'd say, eight to ten years in the making. Um, so I've always sort of worked at the intersection of disciplines, law, economics, sociology, technology, uh, and I teach an internet law class. I've taught internet for about an internet law class for about 20 years, and I'm a co-author on this casebook um, for law students. Uh, and the whole goal of the casebook is to get students to think really hard about how technological progress pushes and pulls on all kinds of different areas of law and society. And so then. Back in, back in 2012, I, I published the book that you mentioned in the opening uh, on infrastructure and the social value of shared resources, you know, roads, the electricity grid, but also ideas and uh, community networks. And in one of those chapters of that book, I was really optimistic about the open Internet and all this incredible social value it generated, how it gave billions of people around the world incredible capabilities to communicate with each other and generate and share knowledge, to socialize at a distance, like in real time, anytime, uh, and all this stuff. And so it really got very, very optimistic and very upbeat about an open Internet and all the things it was enabling us to do. And, I, you know, and on the whole, I'm still quite upbeat about what's possible looking forward. Um, but back then, I focused quite a bit on net neutrality. But then at the same time, like right around that time, I started to think more critically about how the digital network technologies, the, a lot of the technologies built on top of the Internet, you might, th- you might say, yeah. how they're reshaping our relationships, how we communicate, how we think, often, though not always, for the sake of profits and sort of on, on the receiving end, sort of cheap convenience, making our lives easier. Um, and so teaching Internet law, I saw the students' attitudes, their preferences, their beliefs about privacy, uh, for example, shifting as they became accustomed to playing on social networks and on their phones. And so the quaint, the quaint idea of accessing the Internet from a desktop uh, faded <laughs> as people were nearly always on, right, right one form or another. And, and that shift kind of meant our lived-in real space environment itself was being slowly reconfigured. Right. And that's when I had the sense that so were we. Right. Some, something was happening to us as human beings and our relationships with each other as all of these environments within which we live our lives are being reconfigured. Right, right. So that's how this title came into being. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the, the ti- it's interesting. The, um, and the title's a little, <laughs> Reengineering Humanity is a little, is a little dark and stark. Um, here's what, you know, so one way to think about it is, is uh, so human beings have sort of these special powers, right? We can, we can imagine things that don't exist. We can communicate with each other in person, but also at a distance, you know, with technology and across time about imagined things. So we can cross generations. And these sort of very, these very special powers that humans have allow us to develop things like culture and beliefs and laws and technologies and all these other things that are essential to cooperation and modern civilization. And so I think what matters most is how we exercise these powers across generations to shape our world and ourselves. In a sense, this is how we engineer humanity, right? So we're always engineering humanity. Every generation is engineering humanity, who we are and who, who we can be collectively across generations and over time. And so, that, so basically the title's referring to this idea that we're re-engineering what really matters about being human. Um, with the, techno, the technologies and the social systems that we're sort of you know, deploying 
in modern times. And, and so, like, if you, if the if the biggest idea you might think across generations, or at least I think across generations, that we've engineered in the last few centuries, uh, is, an, is something you and I were talking about before we went online. Is this idea that despite despite all of the environmental contingencies, all those things are outside of our control that shape who we are and what's possible for us. There's this sort of idea that we can be authors of our own lives, at least to some degree, right? That we have some meaningful agency or some degree of freedom right. in who we are and who we can be in our lives. But this freedom isn't natural. It's not, it's not naturally given. It's not inevitable. It's contingent. It, it can be taken. It can be lost. It's sort of something that depends upon the built world, the, the, the world we live in and how we sort of manage it together, you know, collectively. And so, you know, an earlier title of the book was Humanity Lost, and that was where I was more, in a more <laughs> That's even scarier. That was even scarier, and I was a little bit more dystopic. Even and I wanted, darker. And, I, and I'm, not that, I'm not that pessimistic. I mean, I think we can, you know, nothing's inevitable. We can fix things, but we do have to sort of wake up. You know, my son, I should tell you this, it's a funny story, yeah. if you're interested. It's yeah. a, I, I, I was on the, uh, taking my younger son, my 12-year-old, a soccer match, and, um, and on the way, we were listening in the car to Rage Against the Machine. I don't know, it's a, you know, a punk band from the, from the 90s, but I like it. So we were listening to Rage Against the Machine, and there's a song called Wake Up. And, mm. so, and so my son Jake and I were listening to it, and he's like, this song is great. And he's listening to the song, and he said, you know what? That should have been the title of your book. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been Wake Up. Yeah. Or, or yeah. maybe Rage Against Becoming a Machine. Well, that's your next book. <laughs> I know, out of the mouths of babes, they really can help us, but... I know. Yeah, well, that's good that he was listening to the words and really connected it to what you're doing and understanding. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's, that's the idea. I mean, there, we, we have had... A, my co-author and I played with a couple... You know, humanity loss was too negative, and at one point we had being human in the 21st century, which is kind of more positive. Yeah. And then we kind of settled on this re-engineering humanity because it... Mm-hmm. It got us to think about not re-engineering humans, but re-engineering humanity, re-engineering what matters right. uh, across generations. Right, right. And, and you know, I think of these um, avatars that, that people are no longer themselves. They, they have created these avatars for themselves instead of themselves. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was another thing why I was thinking of the front of your book that, you know, are we eventually going to take our consciousness and put it into avatars? Or are these avatars going to take over? Are these machines that are going to be so much like, you know, I remember many years ago watching uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Hal took over. Remember? I don't know if you ever saw that. I I did, yeah. I remember seeing that, uh, just to show how old I am, I remember seeing that um, on New Year's Eve with a friend of mine. We went to Times Square in New York and we had to go see a movie before Times Square where we go and kiss everybody. (laughs) Right. And that's the one we saw, and I came out thinking, "Oh my God, this is the future," you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it I, is. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. So I, I often say when I'm talking about the book, I'm not interested. Like, there's lots of people who are uh, Elon Musk, you know, Stephen Hawking. Like, a lot of people sort of are concerned with the rise of a sentient, super intelligent, sentient AI that's going to. Ins- enslave everyone think like skynet and you know terminator or something like that and i'll just speak or i our book my concerns are not with 
the engineering of superintelligent machines. Right, right. Uh, I'm concerned with the engineering of unintelligent humans. Right. I'm more worried about or, or concerned with identifying how when we outsource thinking to technology, when we let certain technical systems that are supposedly smart, we assume they're smart, and so we outsource or delegate responsibility to micromanage our lives to these smart technical systems. But they're not smart in the sense that they're you know, uh, sentient and they're enslaving us. We're almost enslaving ourselves right. by delegating so much authority over our lives to a technical system. There's, and the technical system is always owned by someone. Right. right. There's always a human being on the other. There's always human being or shareholders or whomever or a government. Or, there's always someone on the other side who's the owner, the developer, the deployer of the technology. I'm not really worried about super smart technology as much as sentient technology as I'm worried about, you know, what are, what are we doing to ourselves um, when we, you know, are, how are we engineering ourselves to be unintelligent because we're outsourcing so much? Right. And how I see it is I worry about how does this new, you know, technology of, of changing, how does that affect us for our own freedom? Mm-hmm. And and so speak to that about our own freedom and, and our own uh, privacy, you know? I mean, if we don't have privacy, do we have freedom? That's my question. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So privacy and freedom are interesting things to talk about. So I, I'm on privacy is tricky for me when I think yeah. about it, especially in this book, because... Yeah, you kind of criticize I, it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. And I, you know, I criticize it. So I, you know, I'll give you a couple of little stories on this. So I, I mean, one story, I mean, I offended everyone at a privacy by design uh, <laughs> uh, thing in, in D.C., the big conference, and, and I was a speaker on one of these panels, and I got up and I said, you guys, you know the, the, the line from uh, Princess Bride where... He says, you know, it's inconceivable. He says, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And so I kind of made a play on that with privacy. I said, you guys keep using this word, privacy, when you're talking about privacy by design, but I don't think it, wor- I don't think it means what you think it means. And, I, and, and no one laughed. And I said, why isn't everyone laughing? I thought that was hilarious. Uh, one person laughed, but that, most of the room didn't laugh. And, but then I went on and explained. I said, you know, when privacy means it really matters, but it's too easily everything and nothing at the same time. Right. I mean, it means different things to different people in different contexts, and even the same people in different contexts. It's often, it, the way I see it is it's often necessary, but insufficient. And privacy talk can too easily lead to myopia. It too easily leads you to focus on narrowly on, you know, a particular form of information flow or on a particular kind of solution like informed consent. Um, which increasingly informed consent's a sham. It's just, it's an illusion. Like right. the idea that someone is clicking on something or is consenting to something they don't fully have understanding, uh, you know, understanding yeah. of, yeah. It, it's too easily set up as something that papers over what really matters. And so privacy matters a lot. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm teaching a privacy law class right now. I, <laughs> I, my mentor is Julie Cohen, who's a privacy scholar. I mean, I... I think a lot about privacy, but I think about what privacy does to enable freedom and what it might mean. And then I also think about where privacy is insufficient because it doesn't quite get us to 
to focus on what matters. So right. it, it, yeah, there's a couple examples. Well, you got that whole thing that you talk about free will. And so, you know, yeah. how I how I envision privacy is, you know, the privacy, it's not the right to be left alone like in the 1800s. It's it's kind of a, a control issue. Can I control who sees me in surveillance? Can I control who has information about me? Can I control who um, can manipulate me? I mean, there's, there's so many issues. You're right. Yeah. It goes way, way beyond on just the right to have informed consent. It's, yeah, it's far I more mean, so, than that. Yeah. Yeah. And so once you see privacy is doing a lot more work than just that, then then it gets then you really've got to think systemically about right. what are your values. So I, I mean I I don't think privacy itself is the value. I think privacy is often the means for achieving or accomplishing values like autonomy and free will. Yeah, so um, I think free will is is probably the concern that that you address, right? More of yeah, free I will. Yeah, free will is tricky because I mean, so the the interesting thing we have a whole chapter on free will and engin- right. what we call engineered determinism. Yeah, and we try to engage pretty deeply with. Um, so my co-author, Evan, is a philosopher, and so we, we deal with the, the, the literature and the philosophers who think about free will, and, and it was like doing a little mini-PhD on that topic for <laughs> like two or three years, and, and when we were working on the book, to be honest. And what Evan and I do, I think is pretty, what, one useful thing we do about free will is we say, um, look, there's a whole debate in the cognitive sciences and philosophy about whether free will even exists in the first place. Right? And, and I think that's largely a red herring and a distraction. Mm-hmm. And so one thing we do is we say, just like Pascal's wager about the existence of God, we say you should take a wager about the existence of free will. And if you work, <laughs> we, I won't walk you through the whole wager, but we work through that, what it would mean to take the wager. And we say, no matter, either way, whether free will exists or not, it's unknowable, but even, even if we, whether it exists or not, you should live your life and order society as if it exists. Like, we're better off, so even if it doesn't exist, we're better off living our lives and ordering society as if it exists. Even if it's just an illusion, we will have a better society. And at the same time, if it does exist, you know, we're better off living as if it exists, because, heck, if we lived our lives and ordered society as if there was no free will, right, the cost would be tremendous. And so we, we basically say you should waver, wager in favor of the existence of free will, and, and then if you do that, you'll start to see what really matters. And what really matters is not sort of that your life is predetermined by things you can't control, or, or in other words, like naturally determined in some sense. No, what matters is the world we're building can engineer determinism into your life. And that's what puts free will at risk, right? So if, if free will, and the other thing we do is we try to explain very specifically what we mean by free will. So if free will is, well, what we, here's what I think it is. Okay. It's the capacity to, uh, upon reflection, to determine uh, your own beliefs, intentions, your own will, your, the, the, con, the constituent p- parts of your will, which might, you might think of as beliefs and preferences and values and intentions, right? It's that when, it's, when you have the capacity to reflect on those things and determine them for, for yourself when, when there's a reason for you to do so. And that capacity to reflect upon and determine my own preferences is what allows me to be an author of my own life. 
right? And the, the risk to free will is if we engineer systems, ubiquitous techno-social systems that are deterministically engineered and they govern more and more and more of our lives, micromanaging more and more of what we do and how we think, right? There's a risk that we become fully predictable and programmable people who perform rather than live our lives, right? We're just performing scripts written by someone else. Right. We're performing scripts written by a technology that's nudging you to do X, Y, or Z. You know, I, I, uh, uh, I give you a, like I, I running an experiment actually on this right now. And the funny here, I'll tell you another funny story that this actually happened yesterday. Um, so years ago, I got annoyed that uh, my inbox filled with all these happy birthday notifications. Like people <laughs> in Facebook had said it's your it's your birthday, and we can have a whole separate conversation if you wish about why I'm still on Facebook, but. <laughs> Put that aside for a moment. I'm on Facebook, right? So I'm on Facebook, and so uh, for very narrow reasons, but so I'm, I get all these notifications in my inbox, and I go, you know what? Facebook doesn't need to know my actual birthday. I'm going to change my actual birthday on Facebook to some random day a couple months later. Right. Well, it turns out that that random day was yesterday, <laughs> and I haven't since changed the day. And so I always get a flurry of happy birthday, Bretts. All the same messages you know, every, every year, you know, on my fake birthday. Now, what's interesting is weak ties. People who don't really know me, don't know my, I mean, who I know, acquaintances, people I know from work, colleagues, who I'm friendly with, but they don't know my actual birthday, and that's right. okay. So they're going to say happy birthday when they get a Facebook notification the same way they'd say happy birthday to me if I saw them in a coffee shop and I said, hey, you know what, it's my birthday today. They'd say, right. well, happy birthday, because right. they don't know any better, and it's just, a, you know, it's, a, it's the nice thing to do. Right. What's really weird, though, is that um, strong ties, meaning like very close relatives, who know my actual birthday. Oh, no. They who, were saying happy birthday. <laughs> people who I've talked to on my actual birthday, I spent time on my actual birthday, they know my birthday. <laughs> when I get a happy birthday, happy birthday, Brett, on my fake birthday from one of them, well, then that's what uh. makes me wonder, well, are they performing a script written by someone else? Are they acting automatically? Are they sort of responding to a prompt like a, a stimulus yeah, response machine? Yeah. Or are they thinking for themselves? Cause, so I actually am running an experiment with a data scientist on this right now, something, something similar to this. I don't want to describe it too much, but the, the gist, the, the, not because of we, it's through IRB, it's ethical and all those things, but, but just because I don't want to sort of disclose the, the, the way the, the thing is running. But it's yeah. the idea behind it is basically um, to sort of detect when people are behaving other than, they, you know, other than they otherwise would because they're responding to a stimulus automatically without thinking. And if you think about the or, happy birthday... Or they know you and everybody else is saying happy birthday and they don't want to feel like they feel guilty that they didn't say happy birthday to you when everybody else is. Right. So there's, there's, there's a bunch... Yeah, so you could think there's a bunch of alternative explanations. Usually when that happens, I think in the experiment we're running, the, the strong social tie will contact you off... Facebook or through another message, they'll send you a message or they'll send you a text or there's other means by which they'll communicate and say, yeah. it's not really your birthday, but yeah. you know what, uh, you know, have a great day anyway. Yeah. You know, there's all yeah. kinds of things people say. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's interesting because it's, it's this idea that, you know, we do sometimes, and this is just a very simple, seemingly mundane example, but then when you start to see it in more and more parts of your life, right, then you start to wonder, um, am I performing someone else's script or am I actually 
you know, exercising my own free will and making decisions. Because a straw, like I would have reason to stop and think about the veracity of the signal if I got a if I got a happy birthday notification from my brother whose birthday I know is in January yeah. today. Right. Um, and also the other sort of aspect where you have time to stop and think is when you think about what to write. And it's very interesting the frequency with which happy birthday notifications on Facebook uh, involve the same basically seven to ten words. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. not a whole lot of thinking that goes into the message. Yeah. But anyway. No, I, I pull out trend. my emoji when I send a happy birthday and I find a funny one, you know, and just send one of those emojis instead. Right. You know, one That's of those right. things that, that – in my avatar, I, I created an avatar, and then my creative, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's fun. I mean, that's, you know, you got the dark side, which I share with you, my concerns, and then you right. got the fun side, which is, is really, you know, engaging. But, you know, I think when you're talking about how it changes humanity, and I think about, you know, history does repeat itself. When you think about Nazi Germany and how they were able to, really manipulate the people to to engage and kill the you know the 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 Jews and the anyone who was not quote Aryan right and how they could do that and we think how could they do that but it's a similar idea of they had free will but they didn't use it and right. are we destroying free will when we are manipulating to the extent that we're manipulating online and all that i think um yeah manipulating is a funny word so the um so we when we are trying to figure out how to so one of the things that motivates the book too is that um there's so many different interconnected parts of the problem and there's a tendency to fixate on one or two like one angle and sort of spend a lot of time complaining about one angle or thinking about one angle and not see how they're all they're interconnected um and so you know, manipulation is something that came up for us. We're like, is, is the right word to describe what we're concerned with manipulation? And I was like, uh, you know, sort of, sometimes, but not yeah. always. Sometimes it's just straight up persuasion, right? There's nothing, sometimes it's just influence or persuasion or, or nudging. Right. Or, you know, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, something that seems like it's not, uh, you know, unfair necessarily it's just that people are you know follow the script and you set up a system where following the script is the efficient and convenient thing to do well people do it right. and it's not necessarily a manipul a straight up manipulation where if they didn't understand what they don't understand or there's something hidden about what's going on and so so evan and i like went back and forth about this for a while and we ended up sort of using a much broader and academic-y sounding <laughs> we we call it like techno social engineering of humans, and, and yeah, it's a mouthful. Yeah. And yeah. you know, people are often like, "Why are you?" Well, it's too academic, you know. And I'm like, "But uh, you know, well, it, you're it is trying academic. to use a word that is a newer word to explain beyond what manipulation is. It's because right. it's not. It, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, you have to create are, a new word. <laughs> well, we wanted to create a new word, but we also want to capture the full range of uh, of things, right? So it's so. 
the techno-social part is to sort of emphasize that, you know, we, you know, we're concerned with engineering ourselves through tools we build or our built environment. And so you can think of tools and environments are te as technologies, but they're also social. Like our laws, the copyright law is a technology. It's a, social institutions or tools. Both of those things, they are all architect our environment, right. you know, where we live and we develop and we kind of learn. And so we were like, oh, techno-social is one way to kind of connect technologies and social institutions and, and recognize that technologies are often social and political as well. I mean, so, it's, so that's, that's sort of one way to capture that. And then engineering we use to sort of capture influence and persuade and nudge and manipulate because, you know, it's basically data-driven or scientific management of human beings. And it's like right. managing people and how they think and what they do. And, you know, so engineering captures all of those things. And then, you know, when, when, the, when there are subtle differences where it's truly manipulation or persuasion and that difference between the two matters, for example, if we're thinking of, you know, should the Federal Trade Commission pursue an action against a corporation? Well, you know, if it's manipulation versus persuasion and will make a big difference right and, and we and we recognize that but you well know, if it's a deceptive practice you know that's yeah. what they look at for the federal trade commission can it be considered a de deceptive practice so exactly yeah exactly. So that, yeah. that would matter and then we're like okay they're manipulating people through deception well that's something we might be concerned with uh differently because of the trade-offs and it tells us what to do about it but you know for the purpose of the book we're more concerned with a lot the more general phenomena so yeah kind of using a using a bigger term or broader term i guess yeah yeah. No, it's a fascinating book. Believe it or not, we are out of time. I wanted to ask you more about whether we're becoming machines, but we'll just have to have you back again. Maybe you I'll, and your co-author. It would be interesting to have that, both that of you on. That would be great. The simplest answer is what do you do when you see I agree button? You ask see. Your, that your listeners can just ask themselves or you know, think about how many times. What do you do when the stimulus of an I agree button pops up? Most of us, most of the time. If I'm not that interested and I don't like the fact that they've put this privacy <laughs> stuff, then I then I just delete it. I don't even go further. So Good for you. Yeah. But Good for but you. but if it's something I really want to use or, you know, it's something important, then I'm gonna say I agree. But we are out of time, bro. Right. Oh, well, thank yeah. you very much. Well, thank you, and please uh, keep in touch, and let's do this again and talk more about this exciting stuff. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, just pleasure. give your website, and it's time for us to go. All right, yeah, reengineeringhumanity.com. Okay, thank you so much, and have a great mm -hmm. day. All right, thanks, you too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.